Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and Jezebel, man. Don't you forget it. (laughs) All right. (laughs) I feel like Jason is right at home with these hipster 30-year-old teenager gangsters that we're going to talk about in this episode. The, uh, yeah, it was definitely noticeable that the male gangsters were uh, the age of high school teachers, not high school students. Yeah, some of them some of them suffering some uh, early male pattern baldness, I think, going on there in this film. Um, so in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we've been talking about the films of 1975, and we're here at our season finale, which, as always, is our audience choice episode. And for this season, we had what we thought was an exciting array of lots of choices for you, our audience, to pick from. And we offered up seven choices of different sexploitation films. Of course, the 1970s, exploitation in general, is a huge thing in this decade. We talked about a black exploitation film a couple episodes ago with Dolomite, and we thought we got to do sexploitation here too. And so we found so many different uh, sexploitation films to offer up, including Super Vixens, The Happy Hooker, Cover Girl Models, Street Girls, Emmanuel, The Joys of a Woman, Teenage Seductress, and our eventual winner, The Switchblade Sisters. And didn't quite get the level of response (laughs) that we maybe had hoped for on our poll, but we do appreciate everyone who voted. Maybe these movies not quite as well known as some of the movies we offer up in our audience choice polls in past seasons, but we do appreciate that. We actually ended up with a three-way tie at the end of our poll, and we offered up the tie-breaking vote to our guest, who I will be chatting with a little later. Lynn Camella, UNLV professor of gender studies, and uh, she cast that tie-breaking vote for the Switchblade Sisters. And as you know, I felt the three-way was appropriate for this uh, category. <laughs> so, um, you know, there we go. Yes, and uh, it is. But uh, of course, we did not have the space to talk about all three of those films uh, that that were the top vote getters. Although Dave, I believe, watched Super Vixens, which was uh, one of the three that tied. And I think, Dave, you were a huge fan of that. Oh, my God. Yeah, that that is a movie. If you're going for this particular subgenre, that's the movie to watch. But this one was fun, too. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen it. But uh, that's from Russ Meyer, who is sort of a quintessential sexploitation director. And uh, looks like it's a lot of a lot of fun. But do you know what he's not? What? A Jezebel, man. (laughs) Don't you forget it. (laughs) It's too bad Jason's face that he's making as he says that is not going to be incorporated somehow into this episode because it's it's great. Dave screenshots that he can put it up or something. (laughs) (laughs) I look forward to that. So uh, this film, Switchblade Sisters, directed by Jack Hill. Uh, co-written as well by Jack Hill, who is a major exploitation filmmaker, um, although this is toward the end of his kind of relatively brief career as a, a major exploitation auteur, although he hit kind of all the subgenres of exploitation. And uh, this movie 
is about the Jezebels, as Jason is is sort of uh, indicating there, a gang of tough girls who eventually take out the gang of tough dudes that they had previously been sort of allied with and uh, along the way have some uh, infighting and uh, some nudity and they go to prison and there's a lot going on in this film, really. There is a lot. It doesn't really all tie together, especially when you get to act three, in my estimation. Of Jack Hill, Quentin Tarantino says he's the Howard Hawks of exploitation filmmaking. And of course, uh, we uh, have talked about Tarantino multiple times. This movie was uh, re-released with his Rolling Thunder pictures uh, with other movies, including The Beyond and Chunking Express. So he's a huge fan, Josh. Yeah, and uh, that goes all the way back to our first season, right? When we talked about Chunking Express and uh, his re-release of it. And yeah, when this movie came out in 1975, it didn't necessarily make a, a huge splash. Um, I could not find box office figures for that. It uh, had a budget of $320,000. And I believe entirely just on the re-release in 1996, it grossed $41,000. Um, but I'm not sure how well it did playing at drive-ins and things like that in 1975. Um, like a lot of B-movies, it was released under multiple titles, including The Jezebels as well as Maggie's Stiletto Sisters, Maggie being one of the main characters, and Playgirl Gang. And it was uh, loosely inspired by William Shakespeare's Othello. Yeah, I also found the title The Warriors 2, Las Navajeras. So I was like, how could it be? Because obviously when I hear The Warriors, I think of the Walter Hill picture. And I think Walter Hill and Jack Hill, you can make some interesting comparisons of what they were doing. But of course... The Warriors came out in 1979, so I'm not exactly sure what that's referring to. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, I don't know either, but my guess would be that that might be some sort of like video title from the 80s or something. And they someone gets the rights to this old movie and they slap that title on it to capitalize on something that was popular later. You know, that kind of thing does happen with those VHS releases in that time. Did did you feel that uh, Walter and Jack had uh, some simpatico filmmaking styles as the Hills? I, I do. I do think that that's the case. I mean, Walter Hill, of course, is a more reputable filmmaker, I guess. But I mean, The Warriors owes a lot to exploitation movies, obviously, even though it's been elevated as this more mainstream success. I think there's a lot you can compare the warriors to here and the, the stylized depiction of street gangs. And as much as exploitation movies were supposedly gritty and supposedly representing, you know, the real social problems of America or whatever, this is obviously a very stylized film. Right. I think maybe Jack Hill's finest work is the uh, stuff he did with Pam Greer, Coffee and Foxy Brown. Right. I mean, that's certainly what he's best known for. Um, and I actually watched Coffee in addition to this. And uh, it's it's pretty good. It's it's fun. It's, you know, it's rough as all these exploitation movies are, but you can see how Pam Greer has that charisma to become a big star. And he worked with her, I think, four times. And they, you know, they had a big collaboration early in her career. And we did talk a lot about, you know, obviously we did Dolomite this season. So talking about black exploitation, And it's interesting because, um, you know, Jack Hill is a, a white guy who's directing these like seminal black exploitation movies with a female lead. And that's pretty unique combination. Yeah, I think so. I mean, of course, at the time, most directors were white guys, although in that black exploitation genre, 
there was more diversity. You know, we talked about Dolomite, of course, which was directed by a black director uh, as well as Shaft was. Um, but yeah, I mean, you could argue uh, that these exploitation films that Jack Hill made were progressive in certain ways, if not in every way, perhaps. And, you know, we can talk about that with this film a little more. So given that this was such a small scale film, I tried really hard to find reviews for this from the contemporary period. And, you know, I'm not a crack researcher per se, but, um, I, you know, I've, I've, I've done okay. And it was tough to find. So I only got one review from the time, but when it was re-released in 1996, of course, thanks to the support of Quentin Tarantino, it got a lot more reviews. So uh, I grabbed a couple of those as well. But starting from actual 1975, Bill Thompson in the Philadelphia Inquirer said, Switchblade Sisters is an incredibly trite and mostly unrealistic movie about white and black teenage gangs and the decadence of teenagers in our major cities. It is also a futile commercial effort to sensationalize the ills of detention centers for young women. Unrealistic massacres on the streets and in a skating rink make the picture totally unpalatable. At its best, Switchblade Sisters is a desperate commercial effort that fails to do anything for a serious viewer other than evoke nausea and disgust. Mm. Well, that's what you want from an exploitation movie, I think. <laughs> right. I feel like if you were a fan of this kind of stuff and you read that, you would think, yeah, I got to go see this movie. <laughs> I got nausea and disgust. That's a two for one. Right. Exactly. You know, if some some stuffed shirt at this newspaper is appalled at this film, it's it's got to be good. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, as you know, uh, from my letterbox review, go for Jason, just owning letterbox right mm -hmm. now, Josh, um, for the exploitation, I wanted more exploitation, you know, and I think other Jack Hill movies do that. But, um, you know, I think we could have ramped up the violence and the sex in this thing. I mean, I'm I'm with you on the sex, especially since we had this as our sort of sexploitation category. And to, to be fair to, to us, we had not seen any of the movies that we chose to offer up here. And we kind of had to speculate on them fitting in this genre. And yeah, there's not a ton of sex in this film, not a ton of nudity in this film, especially compared to something like a Russ Meyer movie. But I, this is a very violent movie. <laughs> I mean, that skating rink massacre has got a huge body count. And there's a climax that's this like giant gun battle on the street, like something out of a post-apocalypse movie. Well, I want more of it. Okay. <laughs> Jason's bloodthirsty. <laughs> so I did, I did grab a couple reviews from the re-release in 96, which again, I think thanks to Tarantino's endorsement of it, it got all this extra attention from mainstream critics that it hadn't gotten when it was released in 1975. And some positive, some not so much. Roger Ebert was not a fan. He said, the problem with Switchblade Sisters is that no one on screen is any better than the talent behind the camera. The movie is badly acted, written, and directed. And while I was watching it, I realized that in some unexplained but happy way, the basic level of cinematic talent has improved in the past two decades. Few new directors today could make a film this bad. Switchblade Sisters is a series of tableaus in which stiff actors are grouped in awkwardly composed shots to say things like, freeze, greaseball. The only reason for seeing Switchblade Sisters would be to, would be to condescend to it, to snicker at its badness. 
but there are degrees of bad, and this movie falls far below Pauline Kael's notion of, quote, great trash. Well, he was not a fan of it. You're right, Josh. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't, think it, I didn't think it was. I do agree the acting wasn't good. I mean, pretty much throughout, but um, I didn't think it was uh, slapdash directed. I thought it was capable. Yeah, I, I totally think that. And I also think it's very funny that Roger Ebert is like, no one can make a movie this bad anymore. Like many, 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 many people can make movies much, much worse than it's this. It's funny that he's like, this was so bad, it gave me hope for where cinema is going. This is right. my rock bottom. I found Jesus because of this movie. <laughs> yeah, I think he's really over-exaggerating that. And I, I don't think, you know... We talked about this with Dolomite and, of course, like The Room. To me, this wasn't a so bad it's good kind of movie or something where you could only enjoy this in an ironic way. Like, I think there's a lot of real, genuine appeal to this. And, yeah, the acting is rough, but it, I didn't really think it was honestly that bad throughout. I thought there was some raw energy to these performances, and it is well-constructed. So I really don't agree. I'm interested in hearing your interview with Lynn Camella, Josh, because... She was our tiebreaker vote, and she's the one who chose this one. So why, Lynn? Why? Yeah. <laughs> Jason is coming for you. <laughs> no, I just I want to hear her opinions. Yes. Well, we'll get to that soon. But for now, we have one more opinion, and this is a positive one from Kevin Thomas in the Los Angeles Times, again from 1996. He said, fun is what Switchblade Sisters is. Its hilarious trailer plays it up as camp. But Jack Hill, one of the best exploitation directors ever, is too sophisticated not to have laced conflict with intentional humor. What's more, his gang girls, the Dagger Debs, actually have dimension, and their story, bristling with feminist spirit, is a pian to female solidarity and its importance. Hill makes his serious points so deftly that he doesn't have to ask you to take his pictures themselves seriously. Switchblade Sisters is a terrific example of efficient, resourceful filmmaking, and its depiction of urban ills is, if anything, all too prophetic. I uh, see. I'm just, you know, watching this in a totally different way. Of course, we weren't alive when this movie came out, but I didn't feel like it was like speaking to urban decay or anything like that. It's a campy exploitation movie. You know, this whole idea of like, uh, being a feminist power movie. I didn't get that either. I mean, there was so much infighting between these girls, Josh. So, uh, there is, you know, that's true. so um, it, it just, uh, I didn't get, I just took it as a, as on the surface, B grindhouse exploitation movie. And it's cool that they use female protagonists to, to fight the men. But uh, I didn't, I didn't take it as anything more than that. Right. Well, I mean, I think the, that's the, primary intention of the movie you know these movies are made to just kind of titillate and entertain um you know play in drive-ins get people's attention or whatever i i think you can find social commentary in these films um there's definitely an aspect of like the idea that that we're depicting some some real social problems here. You know, that was part of the appeal, I think, for exploitation movies, that you can get a glimpse into the dangers of, of real young people or, you know, real inner city problems or whatever. And it's obviously exaggerated and silly, but I think there's some 
some grounding or attempted grounding in social commentary. Yeah, I think you're being a film critic looking for film critic things to say right now. I am a film critic, but I think there is something interesting going on in not just this film, but but all, you know, films in this genre. I mean, no, I'm not saying it's not w- within the genre. I mean, look, we, you know, to take it to back to our black exploitation conversation when we watch Sweet Sweetback's badass song, right? That is very clear social commentary. And that's great. And that worked for that movie. But it's also fine to just make a, you know, B-movie grindhouse send up. Right. No, totally. I mean, and Sweet Sweetback is obviously much more of a serious artistic statement. It's almost like an experimental film from Melvin Van Peebles. But I think you're right. It's totally fine to just make something that's like entertaining and and lurid and whatever. And that is what's going on. But I, I don't think you you it has to be mutually exclusive like there's there's social commentary like you i you know i watch coffee and there's like speeches about you know the 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 black community and what's going on there and there's then there's pam greer blowing dudes away with a child no i agree with you and as, as i'd say the same thing about foxy brown i i'm not saying they have to be mutually exclusive and i think and i was literally going to use the example of foxy brown to yeah. say this because Jack Hill's done those two. I'm saying right. this particular piece, I don't get that. I think this is just um, a straight exploitation movie, uh, much like uh, Swinging Cheerleaders, which I watched, which, believe me, the cheerleaders could have done a lot more swinging in that movie. But I, uh-huh. I think, like, yeah, I mean, that's why I said I think, like, not only is best known, but the best stuff he did was when he was able to bridge those two with uh, Pam Greer in those two films, I think. Right. And there's, I mean, I haven't seen Foxy Brown, but I, in, in Coffee, certainly there's more clear social commentary. But I mean, when when the the Jezebels go and they team up with the the gang of, of black girls and their headquarters has posters of Mao and they're handing out the little red book, you, you can't say there's no political content in that. I guess maybe it's just it was either too forced or didn't have any effect, whereas the movies that we're talking about worked within the context of the film a little better. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. So obviously, Jason, you had not seen this before. I don't think any of us had seen this film before or any, like I said, any of our sexploitation options. <laughs> we're so uh, I, I blame Pornhub for our lack of 70s. Uh... <laughs> No, that's not true. I mean, look, all this stuff used to be on pay cable all the time. And uh, maybe uh, we just didn't get around to these because we were too busy watching awesome 80s sexploitation movies like Bikini Car Wash Company. I haven't seen that one either, but uh, I look forward to our episode. Well, Josh, these down on their luck ladies, they need to become entrepreneurs and um, pay off some bills. So they form a company for washing cars, which everyone needs. But how do you separate yourself? You wash the cars in bikinis and less. Now that's some sophisticated <laughs> social commentary right there. I mean, in the 80s with junk bonds and Wall Street and yuppies, I feel like it really captures the time. Totally. I look forward to watching that. I think if we get enough Patreon subscribers, Jason should start a bikini car wash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then make a film of it. Yeah. Dave. Uh, if we get enough subscribers, I will wear a bikini, but I'm not washing the car. Yeah. Yeah. Just hanging <laughs> that out. It seems like side. a lot of work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no manual labor. I will go with you to an automatic car wash and I'll sit in the car while it's being washed in a bikini. Nice. Nice. This is a very elaborate <laughs> process now. Um, so Jason, had you seen, I mean, you mentioned Foxy Brown. Did you watch that like this week or had you seen that before? Uh, uh, Foxy Brown and coffee. Um, I had. Definitely 
if you know has seen in bits and pieces before but obviously this was a good choice to kind of uh sit down and and really watch them all the way through or rewatch them um so i hadn't you know i i you know we know of jack hill and these movies but we really hadn't explored i also like i said watch swinging cheerleaders which i think like um man what an opportunity to ramp up the exploitation and uh again it, it kind of left me wanting for more yeah jason's really got uh high uh expectations for how much exploiting is going on in his exploitation <laughs> i want everyone to be exploited yes for the entire duration of the film right um yeah so i had not i had not seen this like i said i did watch coffee this week i had seen spider baby which is a very weird film another jack hill film that has quite a cult following that uh is is more along the lines of like a rob zombie movie or something is clearly a big influence on him and it's sort of this weird horror thing about this this demented family that's uh yeah it's an interesting film it's very different i think from a lot of the exploitation stuff but um i i would have been happy to watch you know foxy brown or some of his other films all of the stuff that he's done in this in that kind of brief heyday that he had looked pretty interesting so dave what was your uh sexploitation experience well, I know we had an Emmanuel film on the uh, lineup, and certainly yeah. I had seen a few of those back in the day. So, <laughs> watching those through the scrambled uh, Cinemax cable channel. Oh yeah, absolutely. But the, thing, um, the yeah. thing about Emmanuel is, was there a more worldly traveler than she was? You know, <laughs> she, <laughs> she was, got around. She was always in a different location, including uh -huh. space at one point in time. <laughs> you know, really, um, she really, really decided, hey. I'm going to have sex all over the world. And she did it. Good for her. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Josh, um, you mentioned Rob Zombie, and I think that's apropos because of the three actors that Jack Hill is noted as discovering, you have, of course, Pam Greer, you have Ellen Burstyn, and you have Sid Haig, who we all know from the Rob Zombie films. Right. Yeah. And I'm I'm sure in addition to Quentin Tarantino, Rob Zombie was also a fan of not just Spider-Baby, but probably all these Jack Hill films. They definitely seem like his kind of thing. Uh, so anything else on the background of this film you want to mention, Jason? Well, Josh, I told you I uh, grew up with the Bikini Car Wash Company. What were your late late night Skinamax movies? Man, I don't know. See, I was always just into horror movies. I started when I was, you know, 12 or 11 or 12 or something. I remember seeing the Night of the Demons the first time. And, you know, that was forbidden because it has nudity and stuff in it. And and I feel like I just went right to those. I don't know that I watched any of these like exploitation type movies um, in that formative period. So I have to make up for it now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're stunted in that way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I just, I just instead watched, uh, you know, gory murders and uh, skipped right over all the, the sexiness. <laughs> Can I pose a quick question to any of our listeners who are big into these exploitation movies? Yes, but only if you mention your favorite first. Oh, well, I already said Emmanuel, so let's just leave it at that. But um, <laughs> no, I remember when I was younger walking around the video store and I've been trying to figure this out for years in various like on IMDb and stuff like that. There was a box art with a girl in like all leather in an alleyway stepping on a guy's junk. And I, I have no idea what this movie is. And I've always wanted to see if I could figure out what the hell that movie was. So if anybody out there knows... 
you know, write us on social media or whatever. I don't know it, but it sounds like something like Julie Strain would have done. R.I.P. Julie Strain. Oh, yeah. Oh, you know what? That's that's um, I don't know. I don't think she was in this, but uh, I remember uh, Cannibal Women in the Avocado Jungle of Death with that's Bill Maher. Enjoyed. With Bill Maher. Yeah, yeah, that was a lot of fun. I remember watching that one probably more for the comedy than the than the yeah, exploitation. Uh, but there's it, both. I think Shannon Tweed was in that. Shannon one. Tweed. Yeah. That's who it is. Yeah. She's another big B movie. Yeah. All these good Kira Reed. They were all there. There was a whole like, uh, you know, star system for this exploitation <laughs> movies, I'd say. So. Indeed. Yeah. Well, we'll come back and talk more of our general thoughts on Switchblade Sisters. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1975, we're talking about our audience choice sexploitation pick, Switchblade Sisters. And in a little bit, I will be talking to UNLV professor Lynn Camella, getting some of her thoughts on this film. But for now, we have some more of our thoughts. Yeah, you're stuck with me for now, Josh. I'm stuck with you, Jason. Jason, not teaching any classes at UNLV at the moment. No, but, but I could. You could. Call me. We could. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to have awesome movie year as a, as a UNLV class. Hey, maybe. that's a good year. That's a good yeah. class. I would take that class. So. All right. So you were not a fan of this, Jason. No, I just, um, I wanted, like I said, everything ramped up and I just thought like it was just so all over the place. Like, you know, the intro scene where you got this repo man taking Lace's family's TV back and then all of these, you know, the the dagger Debs before they become the Jezebels, like kind of, uh, you know, assault him in the um, elevator. It just like I was like, okay, cool. And then it's like you go through 80 percent of the movie and there's no more switchblades until the end. And um, I just felt like, okay, so this is Lace's story and then it becomes Maggie's story. And then is it Dominic's story at one point in time? Like it just was so all over the place and it wasn't really coherent for me. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it it does feel a bit scattered, especially because it starts and you think it's about this kind of small time gang of girls with switchblades and they're high school students, you know, very old looking high school students, but still they're meant to be in high school and it's just kind of like teenage delinquency. And then you get, especially when you get to that giant massacre in the skating rink where there's like quite a large body count going on and they've got like automatic weapons that they're firing at each other. And, and then even more than that, after the Jezebels go team up with the the gang of of black girls and they have this giant battle on the streets with this like armored car and all this stuff. You feel like this is a long way from that opening scene in the elevator where they're threatening some repo man. Right. Um, I do like that sequence with the, the street fight with the tank and how they just like mash a dude's head with the tank. That was fun. But um, you know, again, it's like, it, it starts out at laces as laces story. And then we meet Maggie and like, okay, so now, but then they kind of fall to the background or like all the motivation becomes about how they relate to Dominic, the male leader. So it's like, you know, for this, like, kind of like, Ooh, is this feminist? Is this like a kind of, uh, um, a, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a, a female driven film. Like it still becomes in a way like subservient to like, Hey, what do we have to do to impress the male right, of it? And, um, I just kind of it just kind of lost me 
in that regard. And like you said, like it, it escalates, but not in a way where it's really kind of A to B to C, right? It's like A to dolphin to, you know, apple juice or something like that. You know, even you're talking about rival gangs. It's not like the Switchblade sisters have a rival gang to take out. It's the male's rival gang. And that gang is just a bunch of hippies who sell drugs, I think. They're a very weird gang. Like, they didn't appear gang-like to me at all. So the whole thing was, it just kind of just was a little too wet noodly for me. Yeah, I mean... I agree that it escalates in kind of a disjointed way, but I still enjoyed all those elements. And I felt like the character work was solid throughout, that even if the plot is kind of all over the place and you get to a certain point, and you're like, how did we get here to this giant massacre? Um, I felt like it was grounded in those characters. And, and especially the idea that like it's it's driven by their reaction to the male characters. I feel like part of the point here is that they have to you know, overcome that. They have to overthrow this male gang that's been in charge of them. And that's how they become empowered toward the end. Eventually, after Dominic gets killed and the male gang members are kind of moping around, then Maggie's like, hey, fuck off. We're in charge now. And that's the moment there. I think that it 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 demonstrates that, that there's an arc there. And so I mean, there's problematic elements here, certainly, as to whether we could call this feminist. But I think that's the the idea going on. There. Well, and to me, it's not a matter of like, I want to characterize this as feminist or this or that. I just wanted this like, you know, the, the story is set up to be about Switchblade sisters, obviously. Right. And then it just kind of takes a backseat to all these other elements. So when you do get this kind of uh, um, completion of the arc, it doesn't feel like it means as much as it might have because the story goes so many different places. Like, uh, you know, you have all this infighting and I think with the the switch, the Jezebels. And I think like we could have focused more on that as opposed to this rival gang of, you know, hippie drug lords or whatever. I, di I didn't really think that element added much to the movie. Yeah, I mean, I agree that that rival gang is weird and they seem to work out of some sort of like community center or something like a, that. A campaign headquarters or... I Yeah, I wasn't sure what exactly that was meant to be. But yeah, Krabs, the rival gang leader, is, a, is an incre incredibly ridiculous character and does not seem all that threatening. But I mean, it still allows for some very entertaining scenes. I mean, I did love the bit where Maggie has been assigned as part of initiation into the gang. She has to go steal Krabs's uh, necklace, which is the ugliest thing. And, you know, so she goes and pretends to, to seduce him and she's about to give him a blowjob and she definitely chomps on she, his yeah, stick. She, she pulls the uh, Tim Robbins threat from, uh, from Shawshank into reality right. there. So, you know, and uh, that's how she gets it. So, yeah. So that was a very fun scene. And then she like, breaks through a wall like the kool-aid man in order to escape i mean come on that stuff is entertaining yeah that stuff's fun I, i'm not saying there were, weren't fun elements but i also you know we have this again like lace is the main character for 10 minutes and then maggie comes in and then she's the main character and you kind of want to see this back and forth because when there is the betrayal then you kind of can um elevate both characters with that but at that point lace has fallen so far into the background 
that I don't think it really pays off the way it needs to. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I didn't I wouldn't say that Lace falls into the background. I mean, I think it's a back and forth and we have a lot of scenes with her and Patch, her sort of the the Iago figure, if you will, if we're talking about Othello, uh, who is egging her on and trying to to stoke the rivalry between the two of them. And you've got her whole like emotional scene with Dominic. Lace is a scene with Dominic where she tells him she's pregnant. And I mean, I felt like there was plenty for her still uh, as the movie progressed, even if the distraction, I think, is more like you're saying when we're when we're not hanging out with the female characters and it's like Dominic and his bros talking about how they're going to take down crabs or whatever. Yeah, don't care there's that. a whole scene where the principal like of the school like talks to the the guys and like this is a character, the Silver Daggers, right? This is a principal we've never seen before. But he seems to be on very good terms with the gang at his school. And he's like, hey, Krabs and his gang are coming too. So, you know, you guys could split like uh, monitoring the halls or whatever it is, like being like the student police. And this gang who like wreaks havoc everywhere takes the job of like hall monitor very seriously. Like, no, this is our turf. We monitor the halls. Right. And uh, it just and then we never see the principal again. So I don't know. Again, like there's. Uh, I think there could have been a like a more streamlined structure, and I think it would have benefited those bigger set pieces like the the shootout at the roller rink, where we find out spoiler alert that um lace has told Krabs's gang what's gonna happen, and they do all the murders because she was trying to get Maggie murdered, but instead gets Dominic murdered. so wah, wah. Right. And that betrayal is important. And and I suppose partially, at least, we need to understand the battle between Krabs's gang and the Silver Daggers in order to get that across. But I, I agree with you, that scene with the principal. I mean, on the one hand, it's kind of funny because it's like, oh, the, the principal has just completely accepted the idea that gangs control his school and he's like <laughs> negotiating with them. Um, but on the other hand, yeah, we never see him again. He doesn't seem important. The idea of who controls the school or not does not seem really all that relevant to the story of the film. So I agree that that the stuff with those guys and the, the male characters, too, are all much less interesting than the female characters. So I could have done without some of that. But I still enjoyed the movie overall. I still was entertained. And the fact that so many weird ass random things keep happening i think kept me on my toes like what is this now yeah you know we're talking about patch and at the end of the movie when the cops arrest all the jezebels and they have to identify themselves they all say that patch uh, they don't know who she is and she's not part of the jezebels but these cops we know have not only investigated the jezebels before but we've seen them have conversations with the jezebels before right you would think they would like be like, hey, oh, one of them wears an eye patch. I'll remember that because I'm a police officer. Right. But they're all like, oh, you've never seen her before. I guess that she's nobody. Right. And it's like and it really wasn't much of a punishment because she's not in the gang. But while all the rest of them got arrested and sent to juvie or jail, like she gets to just stay and chill and be free. Right. I mean, I think the idea is that being ostracized from the gang is more of a punishment than you know, being arrested or whatever, which of course is not true in a larger sense, but for the themes of the movie, it is true. And the cops, that's, all, that's what I'm saying. The, I understand these points, but they're not adding up to me. Yeah. I mean, the cops also do spend a lot of time complaining about how 
they know what's going on, but they don't have the right evidence or whatever. And because these are juveniles, even though they definitely look 30, um, they can't possibly, you know, charge them with all the crimes that they really committed or whatever. But they do send them to to juvenile detention. And uh, I mean, should we talk about that stuff? The, the the prison scenes? Did you enjoy those? I mean, those are right. Those are like those classic exploitation, like I'm the warden. And uh, if you if you do me some favors, I'll do you some favors. Right. And uh, in this instance, uh, instead of doing the favors, uh, they beat up the warden and that's fun and everything. But um, yeah, look, it's it's you know, it's uh, exploitation 101. Right. Right. I did like that, you know, the warden is like a lesbian and they don't make a huge deal of it, but they're threatening like they're going to beat up her girlfriend or whatever that they know about. Um, and not that they're going to like expose her for being a lesbian, but they're going to beat up her her current uh, yeah. you know, paramour well, or whatever. All types of prison settings are like, you know, grade A for exploitation movies. Right. 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 Um, so did you have any performances that you thought were good? No, you know what? Um, <laughs> no, uh, no right. definitely not. No, I didn't know. I mean, look, Maggie's fine. Like they're they're all right. I was most interested. I wish they would have done more with Donut, who is played by Kitty Bruce, Lenny Bruce's daughter. And I think they could have done a little more with her arc, where she kind of stands up for herself too. Yeah, I, I liked her, and it was fascinating to learn that that was Lenny Bruce's daughter playing that character. But I feel like her, you know, like all of these, yeah, the performances are rough, but I feel like there was an energy to these performances, especially from the the actress who plays Lace. Maggie. Oh. Uh, well, I mean, both, but I, I like jo- Joanne Nail, who plays Maggie. Uh, Robbie Lee plays Lace. I liked her at first, although I feel like after a while, the idea that laces like every line she delivers through these like gritted teeth was a little was a little much um but yeah i mean i think there's there's a there's an energy and an enthusiasm to these performances that that makes up for some of the roughness at least it did for me did you find like you know donut right she's like the the quote-unquote fat girl and she's not fat at all she's like you know she's curvy and very very pretty and it's like hey fat so you don't get to watch us eat and it's like (laughs) What? She's a beautiful woman with curves like this is, you know, a a different time. Right. Well, and I mean, I think also the idea is that it's just about the hierarchy, that because she's like slightly chubbier than the others, that's what they have labeled her as. And so in order to, you know, dominate within this gang structure, they have to seize on one thing, just like Patch is named Patch because she's got the eye patch or whatever. The the difference is Patch is assertive uh, for herself and right considers herself like the consigliere. And I think like had Donut been a person who stood up for herself more, she probably would have been able to rise up those ranks also. Right. And that's, I think, maybe part of the point. But sure, they could have done a little more with her. I mean, she gets a bit of a moment there in the finale where they have the kind of Spartacus moment that you're describing. Um, when they ostracize Patch, but Josh um, just bring in, in Spartacus and Shakespeare and all all the uh, <laughs> apropos elements for Switchblade Sisters, Josh. Hey, you know it fits. It fits. Yeah. So, uh, do we want to rate this out of uh, five Switchblades? Yeah, that's good because they're Switchblade Sisters, Josh. They are. Josh, it only gets two Switchblades for me. Aww, one for Maggie blade. and one for Lace, so they can do a switchblade fight where one murders the other which actually happens in this film two switchblades yeah, and, and that's quite a good scene too i think it's very got a great visual style the silhouettes and good stuff so i give this three switchblades it is a bit all over the place but i still enjoyed watching it dave how would you rate this 
Yeah, it is all over the place, but I had a really fun time with it. I'm going with three and a half switchblades. And uh, I just wanted to shout out my favorite line in the movie is when Dominic says, my old man, God rest his ass. That was a great <laughs> line. <laughs> yes. I thought your favorite line from Dominic was when he was going to deny like all parental responsibilities when they <laughs> says <laughs> yeah, that she's pregnant. <laughs> so you're going to have a baby? So what? You know what to do. Get rid of it. Yeah. <laughs> great, great tough guy voice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So uh, we'll come back in a moment for my chat with Lynn Camella and get her perspective on the Switchblade Sisters. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1975, we have been talking about our audience choice pick, the sexploitation film Switchblade Sisters. And we have now a very special guest joining us, Professor of Gender and Sexuality Studies at UNLV, Lynn Camella. Lynn, thanks for helping us out to understand the strange world of sexploitation films here on Awesome Movie Year. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. What, what a fun invitation to join you to talk about this, you know, fun genre of films. Yeah, it was one that um, when we were kind of planning our season, we thought, along with black exploitation, which we did an episode on a couple episodes ago, that we can't leave 1975 without talking about this particular subgenre. Mm -hmm. So we actually, in our tight, uh, aka not receiving a ton of votes, audience choice poll, <laughs> <laughs> gave you the chance to cast a tiebreaker vote because we had had a three-way tie toward the end of this poll. And you chose this film, Switchblade Sisters. So I guess my first question for you is why? Why did you have us watch Switchblade Sisters? Yeah, so I chose that. You, you gave me three choices, and they were really interesting choices, but they were also all very different. One was a Russ Meyer film, which just felt like a little too on the nose because he's such the king of sexploitation. And then the other was The Happy Hooker, um, which you know I watched a little bit of, and it stars actress Lynn Redgrave. It has very Hollywood feel to it um, and very kind of polished, right? It didn't really feel like it had all the elements that I would expect to find in a kind of classic exploitation or the subgenre sexploitation. So then I did a little reading, being the little studious person I am, and I was just like, oh, well, Switchblade Sisters. I mean, it just has everything, right? I mean, it has girl gangs. It has, you know, some TNA. It has um, violence, um, but also this this kind of power to the people ethos, you know, in, in the film as well. And I I just thought it was a really interesting um, kind of film to talk about that that seems like it kind of straddles um, the, the kind of you know elements that you would expect out of you know a, a kind of classic exploitation film and 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 kind of flirts with sexploitation but maybe not to the degree that you would expect to find in a Russ Meyer film so i just thought it would be an interesting film to talk about so you say you were looking for a movie that kind of hit certain expectations maybe so what yep. what what to you makes for the perfect sexploitation movie 
You know, I, I feel like sexploitation, um, my understanding of it, and I want to just issue a caveat that I'm, I'm not an expert on sexploitation films per se, but I have a lot of friends and colleagues who are and who've written entire books about the history of exploitation and sexploitation. So my understanding is, is that sexploitation really had its heyday in, in the 1960s, right? As um, obscenity laws started to change and loosen, and there was just more room to push the boundaries of nudity and uh you know, kind of simulated sexual scenes. But I think that, you know, kind of exploitation slash sexploitation has some characteristics. Um, for instance, they really focus on quote unquote forbidden topics. So, you know, anything to do with vice, to do with, um, you know, unwed motherhood, abortion, certainly, you know, sex workers, you know, the, the, that those types of things, like things that are like very, you know, at least in terms of classic Hollywood, were we're kind of taboo subjects. Um, but I think that there's like a production value, right, that you kind of expect um, exploitation slash sexploitation films to have. There's a very kind of um, B-movie quality to them, uh, a little bit cheesy, um, which is part of the fun, right? Like they, they don't have super high production values. The production values are kind of low. Um, the acting isn't often great. It can be. But you can roll with it if it isn't, because it's, again, part of the generic expectations that viewers bring to those films. So when you have great acting, it's kind of a bonus that the lines can be, you know, the, the dialogue a little bit cheesy. So I think there's that, that, that B element, a kind of cheese factor, low production um, quality oftentimes. And then, again, like really, you know, delving into topics that you know, mainstream Hollywood for a long, long time really didn't embrace. So, you know, whether that's, you know, drugs, whether it's sex work, whether it's, you know, abortion. And, you know, here, you know, we just have these really rowdy, violent, you know, the girls in a gang that are running the streets and wreaking havoc, you know, everywhere they go from diners to their high school classrooms. So had you seen this movie before? No, I had not seen the movie before. And in fact, I had never heard of it before you sent me this as an option to choose from. So I did a little research before I made the choice. But um, what a treat to watch this film. I really had a lot of fun um, sitting down with someone who's a regular listener to your podcast, my husband, Ryan, um, and we watched it together and had um a blast actually it was fun yeah and are, were you familiar with any of the films from this director or the other films because he's directed a lot of like women in prison films and other kinds of exploitation movies that are well known yeah i mean i honestly have to admit i had not heard of him but i did my research before and then after watching the film i read more about him and he obviously is quite well known in this world of exploitation films. And um, I really enjoyed learning about him and the, you know, his body of work, because it is very considered to be feminist, considered to really represent strong women. And um, 
you know, done a lot of work in, you know, various genres of exploitation filmmaking. So hats off to him. So, I mean, having said that, then, did you think that this was a feminist film? Good question. So I really loved the film. You know, I really thought it hit all the right notes of what you would hope to find in a kind of classic 1970s exploitation film. I think the one thing that surprised me was I thought it was a little light on the sex and nudity. I thought there would be more of that. So I kind of think it maybe flirts with being sexploitation, but at the end of the day lands a little bit maybe more firmly in classic exploitation. Um, so the question of, did I think it was a feminist film? I'm going to go with yes. And, you know, I read something where a writer said, you know, that there are moments in the film when the women are victimized, but they're never victims. They always fight back fiercely. Um, and, and I think that that's true. And I think where the film really felt super feminist to me and what I loved is that moment where Maggie kind of, you know, evolves into this leadership role as the head of this girl gang. And she kicks out all the boys. She just like kicks them out of their gathering place, like banishes them, and then renames their group the Jezebels. And to me, that was just a really defining moment of, of this film that, that, you know, really um, kind of said something potent, you know, that, that, uh, you know, Jezebels are, are kind of immoral, they're shameless women. And, and she just kind of stepped into that. And um, the other girl gang members followed suit. So saying then that the the characters, the female characters are never, they're victimized, but they're never victims. I mean, one moment that stuck out to me is the sort of depiction of sexual assault in this film when Maggie is, uh, I mean, I don't know how you would want to describe this moment, but to me, it seems like she is raped by Dominic, the leader of the male gang. Yep. And mm -hmm. then the movie shifts it and sort of presents it in this I think, you know, familiar trope, unfortunately, from from older films of women who say no, but mean yes. Yeah, that whole scene was really weird and super confusing and, you know, didn't really need to be in there. Um, I mean, that's a perfect example. I mean, to be clear, it was a moment of female victimization and, and sexual assault that, that kind of came out of nowhere and didn't go anywhere, really, in, in a weird way. And, and so, you know, it was this moment of victimization and then... It's really hard to figure out exactly what's happening between Dominic and Maggie in the aftermath of that, right? Because there is this um, vibe of flirtation between the two of them, right? That gets us into some kind of, you know, difficult to untangle, problematic, heterosexual power dynamics and stereotypes. And I think you touched upon one of one of those stereotypes. Um, and yeah, so Maggie, it's it is kind of like, you know, seems to be interested in Dominic, but then also maybe isn't interested. And is she just kind of drawing him out for some other ulterior motive? I don't know. It's a little bit difficult to untangle and to me, that was like 
the lowest point in the film, you know, and, and, you know, I, again, I understand the genre, like this is part of exploitation films, right? They have this violence, they have the sexual assault, they have these things that um, happen or happen and are presented in such a way that that's supposed to be, you know, really counter to maybe what you would expect to see in a more mainstream Hollywood film that that's part of the, the, the genre of these films. So yeah, there was a lot to untangle in, in that scene and its aftermath. And did, did that tarnish your enjoyment of the film going forward, having seen that particular scene? Uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I didn't like it, but to me, the film was a film as a whole, right? You know, that, that I, I felt like, um, it, it was a weird scene. I think it could have been cut, but I, I really, um, I think for the most part, unless it's a really, really bad film that for whatever reason I can't watch, like I don't really like violent films. I stay away from horror films. The Descent was the most uncomfortable viewing experience in my entire life. I still have trauma over seeing that in the theater many years ago. So um, it, you know, I, I really do, I think, and and this this film is an example of that, like kind of watched the whole film and viewed it as a text in its entirety, right? And so that was one moment of an entire film um, about this kind of, you know, anti-normative, going against the grain, tough as nails, girl gang. And, you know, they're not going to take um, any guff from anybody. Um, and And so... You know, I, I guess what stands out to me are other scenes like, you know, the prison riot is just like a great moment in the, the film. But I mean, we got to talk about like the the great skating rink massacre of 1975, because it's hard to beat that scene. Yeah, that is an intense scene. And this movie builds to these moments of violence that are really heightened. I mean, we have essentially like this apocalyptic street battle here, right at the end of this film. Yeah, like all the all of a sudden we 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 go from this kind of urban setting that we can't really locate. Maybe it's LA, maybe it's some other place. We see palm trees, but you know, we never know exactly where these high school students, some of whom look 30 years old, live. And then all of a sudden we're, you know, in this kind of, you know, World War Three, you know, Molotov cocktails and full-on frontal assault with, you know, some variation of a tank rolling down the street and cars on fire and really intense. Yeah. So would you say the that roller rink massacre scene, was that your, your favorite moment of the film? Well, it was certainly one of them because it was just so over the top for sure. So it, it was one of them for sure. And I did like, you know, early on in the film, I, I did like the the kind of girl gang prison riot, because to me, that was such a great kind of exploitation film trope. Um, you know, women in prison kind of thing. And that just was so over the top. So I, I think I really responded to those scenes that really seemed to depict um, the elements that you would expect to see in a film like this by by this filmmaker. Um, so I, I, I that made it, you know, very enjoyable. The the kind of 
you know, knowing that the filmmaker is really leaning into the the kind of B-movie quality, really leaning into the cheese factor, you know, and then there's great, great, like, one-off lines, like Patch, for example, you know, I lost my eye for you guys, remember, you know, just, and then that's it. So the, there was, you know, fair share of cheesy dialogue, fair share of bad acting, you know, the lace who like delivers all of her lines like through gritted teeth. But it was a, it was a definitely a very entertaining viewing experience. And I appreciated the opportunity to watch a film that I probably, honestly, Josh, wouldn't have otherwise watched. And that was a lot of fun for me. Felt, it felt like it felt like a break. Um, it felt like an assignment because I was watching it for the purpose of talking to you about it. So it felt a little bit like homework, but it was super fun homework. Well, that's good. That's what we hope to provide for our our listeners and our guests. And and as as Jason and I often say, for Dave <laughs> as well here on Awesome Movie Year. <laughs> um, so talking about that that prison riot scene, um, what do you think of the way that this movie depicts lesbianism? I guess I wasn't viewing this film with an eye towards kind of one moment saying something especially meaningful. Like I was not watching or, you know, as we say in the business, reading this film with um, an expectation that there was some bigger, more significant meaning about any of it, you know? And so, and, and I think that that allowed me to watch it in a certain spirit and embrace it for what it was, right? A kind of, you know, over-the-top, cheesy exploitation film um, that, you know, really kind of had all of, like I said before, the elements that you would expect to see. And so I wasn't looking at it necessarily as a feminist statement or, um, you know, a statement about violence or sexual violence, you know, because I expected to, to see some problematic things in there. I think I would have maybe had a different impression of the film overall if I had no idea what I'd be walking into. I, I, I really do. I probably would have been like, I don't understand this. I don't know how to make sense of it as a form of entertainment or as a part of film history. And, you know, I knew what I was signing up for when, you know, we we hit that button on the remote, you know. Um, so, yeah. So do you have any kind of overarching personal approach or philosophy to the idea of enjoying problematic films? Well, I mean... You are posing this question to someone who studies and writes about the history of pornography. Right. Right. And that's why so, I'm posing it. Right. Right. So, uh, I mean, you know, it, and I and I offer that up to people who are listening because I think that's just an important kind of context. Um, you know, I, I don't think there's any one size fits all for, you know, how to engage with popular media or, or film. You know, I, I think that, and, and that's, and that's something that makes it interesting, right? I mean, I write a lot about, and I study, um, you know, feminist pornography and you have people who would say there is no such thing as feminist pornography. It's simply violence against women packaged differently. And, and I would 
disagree with that. But though, you know, so, you know, I, I think even in moments where there might be problematic or even anti-feminist aspects to a media text, it's still worth engaging with and even trying to understand kind of like why did that director make that decision? Why did the screenwriter write this? Why did an actor perform that scene this way? So um, I think everybody, when it comes to their media engagement, you just have to kind of know yourself and know your limits, right? I mean, I, I mentioned that I don't like horror films and I don't watch them. And I've, you know, certainly in kind of, viewing popular media, I, I know what pushes my buttons. And a lot of it has to do, like, I could not watch The Bear. I made it through the first episode of The Bear, which everyone is raving about critically. And the dynamic of everybody yelling at each other in the kitchen, yelling, 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 I was just like, I'm done. I, I, I'm not going to watch this. So anything that is really like, anxiety producing and it's, and there was no violence it was just people nonstop yelling i couldn't do it and so i know to walk away from media like that right things that really cause anxiety things that just feel like there's a really toxic family dynamic i don't need to watch other people's dysfunctional family dynamics thank you all right so <laughs> that has nothing to do with kind of you know um problematic sexual content, right? But I know my limits in general around content. Somebody else might bring something totally different to the table when it comes to, you know, their triggers around sex and sexuality. Um, my triggers are different, different set altogether. Yeah. So I don't know if I really answered your question, but I think people need to kind of be mindful of things that really disturb them. And there's no one size fits answer for that. Yeah. And as an aside, I will say, you know, that's the whole basis for writer Roxanne Gay talking about being a bad feminist. That's the whole principle, you know, that that she likes music that some people would consider anti-feminist because of its lyrics. And she's like, OK, I guess that makes me a bad feminist. And, you know, somebody might say the same thing about me and I'm OK with that. OK. So beyond the choices that we offered up here for this episode, do you have any favorite sexploitation films? Ooh, that's a big question. Um, I mean, you know, I, I think that um, I know probably, you know, the films of Russ Meyer the best, right? Because he's just like kind of the king of it or just, you know, somebody that, that you can point to. But, um, you know, I, I'm a little bit hesitant because, you know, I, I do kind of, you know, know the person who wrote the book on 1960s exploitation films. And it's amazing when you start to look at kind of those films and that subgenre of exploitation films. I mean, there were just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them being created in the 1960s. So it's a really shockingly vast subgenre um, that hasn't actually been studied or written about, you know, some people would argue, as much as it should be given its importance to film history and given the role that it played in helping to set the stage for hardcore pornography, right? Mm -hmm. So any, uh, any other final thoughts on this film? 
I think folks should watch it. I mean, even if you're not a fan of exploitation films, even if you've never watched one, give it a try. And if you don't like it, you can stop watching it. If there's a scene that maybe makes you feel uncomfortable, you can fast forward through it, right? Like that's the great thing about things being, you know, available streaming right now. But I would say, honestly, um, Maggie is great. The character Maggie, she's really great in this um, film. And watch it for the great skating rink massacre of 1975, if for no other reason. Um, it's just like a violent scene and it's really over the top and just deserves its own little place in exploitation film history. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, Lynn. Uh, is there anything that you want to plug, social media, websites, anything where people can check out more from you? Um, no. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Take one of Lynn's classes at UNLV. Oh, yeah, please. I mean, honestly, I would plug my, some of my colleagues' classes. Um, but no, I... I Honestly, what I want to plug, let me back up a second. I would say, you know, I have the great um, honor of being a department chair, and I um, chair the Department of Interdisciplinary Gender and Ethnic Studies at UNLV, and we are really like a kick-ass department of folks doing super-duper interesting work, and you've probably, you know, heard my colleagues on other podcasts, um, but I would say check us out, take a class with, if not me, one of my colleagues, you won't regret it. Perfect. Well, Lynn Camella, thank you again so much. And we'll come back and talk about the legacy of Switchblade Sisters. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1975, we are talking about audience choice pick Switchblade Sisters. And thanks again to Lynn Camella for offering her perspective on the film. And uh, we're going to talk a bit about the legacy of this. And we already mentioned what is kind of the main legacy, which was this revival, the re-release of it in 1996, sponsored by Quentin Tarantino. And you can see why Quentin Tarantino would like this movie. I think so. I mean, this is uh, up his alley. I think he just does much better versions of these themes. Right. I, I mean, mean, Kill Bill, right? Like you could really put a, um, uh, you know, you could piece that together, Dave, that how this would be an influence on Kill Bill. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing with Tarantino in general. And I'm sure we've talked about this in our episodes on his films that, you know, he synthesizes all these influences of his from these disreputable films and adds a level of character development and sophistication and strong performances that goes beyond what's on display in most of these movies. Right. But Josh, we did already mention Jack Hill has like a real legacy as far as discovering actors, making seminal exploitation movies. And also he was a big influence on Apocalypse Now because he was classmates with Francis Ford Coppola. And um, he made a student film called The Host that Coppola used as kind of a guide point for act three of apocalypse. So says Mr. Hill. Well, you know, I, I buy that. Yeah. I mean, this was actually toward the end of his career, which, like I said, was a fairly brief period during this heyday of exploitation. And he really did hit all the subgenres. He did black exploitation. He did women in prison movies. He did horror. He did all this stuff. And he only made one more feature after this, 
a movie called Sorceress in 1982 that he directed under a pseudonym. So maybe that didn't turn out how he wanted. And uh, he's still alive, but I'm not really sure what he's been doing for the last four yeah, years. Dave, why didn't you get us an interview with Jack Hill? <laughs> we'll do that in the uh, follow-up episode. Cool. But we had a great interview with Lynn. So, uh, you know, well, that was yes. that all worked out, Josh. Uh, I like the film's tagline, so easy to kill, so hard to love. <laughs> I don't know if that's really accurate, though. Um, no, they of weren't that not. easy to kill. They were hard to kill, actually. Yeah, they, you know, we were very tenacious. And uh, um, and as for their lovability, that jury's still out, right? So most of these actors didn't really go on to particularly notable careers. Uh, you know, Robbie Lee, who played Lace, did do a bunch of voice acting in the '80s and '90s, and uh, has since retired. Uh, Joanne Nail had a few more credits who played Maggie. Uh, her last credit was in 1988. Um, Monica Gale, who played Patch, again, a few more credits until 1979. I did like, I was trying to find, you know, some info about what these people were up to now. And Monica Gale's IMDb official bio says she, quote, seems to have vanished into oblivion. Mm. <laughs> Janice Carmen, who played Bunny, married Ross uh, Bagdazarian, who created Alvin and the Chipmunks, and she was the voice of many of the characters, including some of the Chipettes. So that's exciting. Yeah, that's something. Um, yeah, Asher Bronner, who plays Dominic, he also, you know, worked sporadically until 2003, and he passed away in 2021. Kitty Bruce, who we mentioned, you know, the daughter of Lenny Bruce, who seems like that could be a big launch pad. She only had one other acting credit. Apparently, she. Uh, tried to be a pop singer for a little while, uh, including opening for Diana Ross, and uh, then she became a nurse. So uh, well, well, left show business. Let me let me bring some some of the other ones in there. Uh, Kate Murtaugh, who was the prison marm, uh, she was a comedian and was in films including Breakfast at Tiffany's and Farewell, My Lovely. But Josh, what I find most interesting is she was the cover model for Super Tramp's Breakfast in America, both front and back cover. Hmm. All right. Super Tramp, of course, sounds like the title of a sexploitation <laughs> there film. There you go. So, and the lyric, you know, what is it? Take a look at my girlfriend. She's the only one I got or something like that. Sounds like it could have been a line here or something. Yeah, so, why not? Or don't um, you, da, 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 I don't know, whatever the line is. So Don Stark, Josh, was in that 70s show for multiple seasons as Bob Kincaid. Yeah, he's the one, I think, out of all the actors in this film who went on to the biggest career. I mean, he's not super famous, but he's one of those actors who you recognize him. He's got a million credits and he's back in that role on that 90s show. So he's still working steadily now. There you go. I did get that super tramp lyric right. So I feel good about myself. That's the most important thing in this episode. So, uh, yeah, anything else you want to say about the legacy of this film? Uh, did you know there's a podcast called Switchblade Sisters with uh, April Wolf, who I believe is a film critic, and uh, she brings on different actors and directors, I believe mostly females, to talk about films of this genre. Oh, I did. I mean, I am familiar with April Wolf as a critic and a screenwriter. I think she wrote the Black Christmas remake from a couple years ago. So that that sounds interesting. That's hey, cool. Hey, Josh, we mentioned a lot of these actors. We should mention Marlene Clark, who played Muff, who was also in the black exploitation film Ganja and Hess and was in uh, Putney Swope and Sanford and Son and Enter the Dragon and Night of the Cobra Woman and was married to Billy D. Williams. Wow. Yeah, that's an impressive career. Muff was the leader of the uh, the gang of black girls in this film. So, uh, Dave, anything you want to add here? 
No, I, I don't think so. I think you guys covered this thing. Yeah, All we right. did. I think we did. So yeah, we did. That is Switchblade Sisters. That is this episode of Awesome Movie Year and this season. Quite a season it was. <laughs> Thanks again to everyone who voted in this audience choice poll. Thanks, of course, to Lynn Camella for our, our, being our tiebreaker and for joining us on this episode. And if you have any more sexploitation thoughts, you could check us out online and on social media. Yeah, we take all videos that you want to put in our, never mind. Uh, <laughs> so, no, we're at awesomemovieyear.com, awesomemovieyear on Facebook and Instagram, awesomemoviepod on Twitter. I'm Jason Harris Comedy or J Harris Comedy on all the socials. Go for Jason is that hot, hot letterbox. Some old stuff from me at joshbellhateseverything.com. I'm also at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook and at Signalbleed on Twitter and on Letterboxd. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And don't forget to join our Patreon the produced by David Rosen Patreon with bonus and advanced content for piecing it together, as well as a bunch of content on the way from Awesome Movie Year. Yeah. In fact, in our next episode, we may talk about that. What's our next episode, Jason? Josh, we're doing an epilogue. We are, as always. We're closing out the season. Thanks for really plugging that and <laughs> making it sound enticing. Josh, the epilogue will be on 1975 and oh, the films of it. Okay. Tune in next time for our 1975 epilogue. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. We're the Jezebels!